You're listening to WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. The Fired Up Show starts right now. And good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Monday. Welcome to Fired Up, right here on WJMSRadio.com, where radio is reimagined. This is Steve. I host the show each week, and we're going to dive right into all things political machine here in the United States. But first, as always, let's uh, check in with our COVID update for this week. As of this week, there are reported 37.7 million cases here in the U.S. 628.3 thousand people have died from the disease and uh, 360 million doses of the various COVID vaccines have been administered. uh, And that's recording people who have gotten at least one dose and uh, roughly uh, 59% of the population has been fully immunized against the disease. Uh, We're gonna talk a little bit more about some numbers. Uh, It's important to note that, you know, as as deadly as the COVID pandemic has been, uh, to put it in a little bit of perspective with where we are and where we're going, I went and did some research on some of the other big uh, pandemics of the uh, 20th century. And, you know, for example, smallpox uh, in this country was a, a wide-ranging disease. It was very feared, and it was responsible for hundreds of thousands of uh, deaths per year, uh, and, and even more globally when you, when you take in the world population at the time. Uh, This disease, through the application of vaccinations and medical treatment, has been declared eradicated since the 1950s. That is, there hasn't been a reported case of smallpox anywhere uh, since, or at least in the United States, since the uh, early 1950s. Uh, There was another that was uh, a big deal back in the day. And uh, that was the measles. And even in my childhood, measles was a very devastating disease. And, you know, there were uh, numerous cases of it that were reported, again, through, through science and medicine and vaccination. In 2020, there were a total of 13 uh, deaths related to measles. Uh, 2019 was a, a spike year, and there, there was 1,282. Uh, And then going back through the the decade of the the 20s, uh, it averaged about 200 people per year uh, with uh, 63 people uh, dying from the disease in 2010. Uh, Similarly for others, uh, you know, there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of cases of uh, mumps and chicken pox and and all of these diseases uh, globally which you know may seem like a lot but when you remember that we're talking about populations in the globe of you know six to eight million over the last you know 20 years or so that's a very small number overall and the other point you've got to keep in mind is that uh, these were diseases that had a a residency in the world and in this country for many many years and decades Uh, and you know then we can sit and compare that with the coronavirus, which, you know, essentially we're coming up on the two-year anniversary of when, you know, we believe the pandemic actually uh, started and, and invaded this country, that, you know, we've seen a, a total of 600 and 
you know, 28,000 people who have died compared to, you know, millions that died across the span of smallpox and measles and polio. Uh, again, another uh, devastating disease that ran rampant through the world. Uh, and there hasn't been a reported case of polio, and it was declared eradicated uh, by the World Health Organization in 1980. Uh, that, too, was another disease that absolutely terrified the population and was the, the subject of an intensive scientific and medical battle to combat and defeat that disease, which ultimately uh, was successful. So, you know, we are in the, in the midst of something that we are going to have to work through. Uh, it has proven to be very virulent uh, in a short two-year history in this country, uh, 37 million cases, you know, 628,000 people have died. And, you know, again, we're, we're talking a span of, you know, 20 months uh, overall. So, you know, it gives you some perspective on just how uh, deadly this disease is and how um, much it can spread and, you know, what the danger rate is from it. Uh, all the more goes to why everything that we are doing from vaccinations through mask wearing, social distancing, and all of the other recommended practices are so vitally important to help us keep this, this disease and keep a cap on it and, you know, reduce those numbers down. Uh, you know, as you look at the CDC statistics, as we always say on this show, you need to do your diligence to dig wider and dig deeper. And if you go to the CDC website and look up, uh, you know, pandemics and diseases, uh, you'll see the statistics on some of what were considered during their outbreaks uh, as, you know, global threats and just big, huge uh, uh, causes for concern among the population of the time and realize that, you know, the advancements in medical science, the advancements in medical treatments uh, have really created a huge impact on how both these, these diseases of the past have been uh, addressed and largely uh, eliminated or managed down to very, very small numbers. Uh, also to keep in mind, as you think about COVID-19, uh, and often there is talk about its comparison to the flu. Uh, each year in the United States, between 185 and 200 million people, uh, men, women, and children, receive a flu vaccine, and yet still uh, anywhere from 30 to 50,000 people in this country die each year from the flu or flu-related complications uh, in this country. Now, you know, that, that's a, a large number of people, and it's regrettable that they die, but from a statistics standpoint, you have to look at, you know, how that lays up against uh, the, the COVID pandemic in that, again, we've had 628,000 people uh, just in, you know, a, a little under two years in this country compared with, uh, as I said, 35 to 50,000 people each year that die from the flu. So, you know, when we talk about diseases being under, under a managed uh, situation, that's what we're talking about. Um, you know, it may, there may come a time you know, down the road where the flu, much like smallpox and polio and some of these other devastating diseases that have, uh, that have plagued us uh, over the, the history of the, the 20th century and, and so forth, 
um, you know, COVID may one day be relegated in that same category, and we absolutely hope so. But just you know, realize that it is a process that we are going to have to work through and do what we can as well as what medicine and science are doing uh, to help us get to that point. So, you know, just some food for thought, you know, and you know, if, if you're still among those people and, you know, anecdotally, the numbers range around 70, 65, 70 million people in this country who still have not received the vaccine uh, and, you know, for the most part are among the crowds that say they are not either don't want it, don't believe in it or whatever. Um, you know, those are the people that are going to make up the majority of the ones that get the infection and the ones that unfortunately will succumb to it. And our numbers that we're seeing in the hospitals around the country now are beginning to prove that out. Statistics is showing us that roughly 90 to 95% or more of the people who are currently being hospitalized uh, for COVID-19 or COVID-19 related complications um, are people who have not received vaccination either by choice or, you know, for some other reason, maybe a medical necessity. But, you know, it, it is still a, a choice that you can make that will actually and absolutely have a huge impact on whether or not, A, you get infected by the disease, and B, that if you do, and, you know, we've talked about breakthrough uh, infections with the Delta variant, which is, you know, much more contagious than the original COVID, um, that the symptoms are uh, a lot milder, a lot worse, um, in, in some cases being compared to, uh, you know, a bad cold or a mild case of the flu. So, you know, there is ample reason why, you know, that e even if you, um, you know, disagree with the science, you should believe in the numbers and realize that the, the best and, and most effective way of preventing yourself and your loved ones from getting sick with COVID-19 is to be vaccinated. Uh, it is just a, a simple fact. So... We'll continue our look, we'll continue keeping track, and we'll continue bringing you information as we learn it going forward. Um, so, turning the page, let's, um, let's talk about something that came across my radar over the past week, and I wanted to talk about it because it, it triggered some interesting um, uh, research that I did and some interesting thoughts that I had. And uh, I'll start with going back to uh, well, oh, mentioning that there was a phrase I heard mentioned in a couple of news outlets uh, called the silent majority. Uh, you may have heard this term. You may have heard it either in you know, a history class in school or you've heard it mentioned recently in, you know, in the media. And you know, it, it's an interesting term because it, it defines the people who uh, essentially in this day and age who um, are not uh, voting and you know it was first coined you know uh, you know way back when you know almost a thousand years ago uh, and it represented uh, a, a description of people who were were deceased who were dead because the the logic was that the the dead were a silent majority because they outnumbered the living which if you think about it 
makes perfect sense because you know everybody that dies is still on the planet essentially um, and there are more of them than there are of us uh, it was uh, mentioned a few times throughout history but it was given probably the most famous mention and brought into the lexicon by uh, former president Richard Nixon in 1969 when he recoined the phrase you know the great silent majority in speaking about those who you know were not voting and were protesting essentially the Vietnam War which was the big conflict of his era and you know he you know described them as being a silent majority that you know was not speaking was not making their presence felt well fast forward to today and we're seeing much the same thing um, I went and did some research uh, out of some of the new census data that has come out from the 2020 census. So uh, here are the numbers. Um, as of uh, the beginning of this year, when the, the census was completed, there were uh, a little bit more than 331 million uh, residents in the United States of America. Uh, of those, the number that are over 18, in other words, eligible to register to vote, was 253.8 million people. Now, those that did register and did vote uh, totaled 159.6 uh, million, leaving about 93 million people who were of age but did not register and did not vote. That group of people uh, has is becoming what is now being called the silent majority. Uh, and if you think about it, that 93 million people um, is a larger group than all of the people that voted for you know, Donald Trump for president and all of the people that voted for Joe Biden for president in the 2020 election. So that gives you the sense of what the silent majority is. It's those people who were eligible but did not exercise the opportunity. And that is a very important group in, in particular as we move toward the midterms where typically and historically the turnout for the midterm elections is much less, somewhere between a third and a half of the number of people that vote in the four-year national election. And, you know, that is something that has been the subject of much discussion uh, in the news media, in political circles, in just about every circle that's out there, uh, because the widespread belief is that if history holds, that the Democratic Party is going to lose their majorities in the House and in the Senate uh, as a result of the elections. And that may well be true. Uh, it, it is, you know, something that the, the pundits are speaking about at great length. And, you know, uh, again, if history is any indicator, typically there are uh, any around 20 to 26 seats lost in the House and uh, five to 10 seats lost in the Senate in each midterm election for the power, the party win power. So, you know, obviously that would flip both houses back to the Republicans in this case. Uh, which would make the Democratic president uh, have a much harder road to get his agenda through than, you know, what he has right now, where he has majorities in both of the bodies. And, you know, it, it has led to some conversation and, frankly, some criticism 
of the, the Democrat Party, uh, of which I, I actually am in agreement with, that the Democrats are squandering their opportunity again, like they did in 2010, when you know, then-President Barack Obama had majorities in both houses and didn't push his agenda through as strongly as he shoulda, oughta, shoulda, oughta, coulda, and, um, you know, ended up that once the midterms happened and he lost control of the Senate, uh, his agenda was basically stalled, you know, in the legislative branch. Um, you know, the, there's been some interesting op-eds put out there and some interesting comments by pundits saying that the Democratic administration needs to take advantage of their majorities and get the the major bills done that they need to get done. And, you know, basically, for lack of a better phrase, give up on this concept of bipartisanship because that, you know, by its nature, by bipartisan means two parties coming together to achieve something. Well, if one party doesn't want to come together, that pretty much throws bipartisanship out the window. So, you know, if, if it is unlikely that, you know, the Republicans are going to come to the table, then fine. Then get done what you can get done with your majority's Democratic Party and, you know, uh, deal with the 22 midterms as the 22 midterms happen. Um, one of the key things that I think you will find uh, is that nothing uh, breeds victory like success. So, you know, if your agenda is moved through and the American people begin to see the benefits of what you've accomplished, uh, it is much more likely that they are going to want to stay that course and not jump ship and change directions in the midterms than otherwise would happen if, if as I said, in my opinion, if you continue to press this, this need to have a, a bipartisan sign-off on things that you can get done right now with the majorities you have uh, and, you know, and, and go forward from there. In, in another point and related, and again, this is my opinion, I think this, this uh, being hung up on you know, Senator Joe Manchin and Senator Christian Sinema and, and others that may be you know, Democrats who are opposed to certain strategies such as getting rid of the filibuster, uh, I think they you know, should be allowed to have their opinion. You know, it is valuable that they are exercising this, this thought, but I think that if you really reach out and speak to uh, Republicans on the on the other side of the aisle and, you know, find those Republicans who, you know, maybe are, you know, have become disavowed of the uh, Trump MAGA uh, mandate that seems to be running the Republican Party these days and, you know, basically do what used to be done in the olden days you know, in, in the, the, the Ron Reagan, Tip O'Neill days and, and so forth, and, you know, the Lyndon Johnson days, where deals were made in one-on-one -on -one discussions, you know, behind closed doors, away from the media, where essentially good old-fashioned horse trading happened. You know, they, the party in power would bring some of the, the opposition in and say, okay, what is it you want? And let's, let's see if we can make a deal so that I can get your support on what I need to give you what you need to bring back to your constituents in order to secure and, and maintain your position.
Uh, that's a strategy, again, in my opinion, that I think would work very well as most Republicans today seem to be overwhelmingly concerned with getting reelected. Um, they are addicted to the drug called power and they want to keep their seats. So, you know, use that leverage. Say, all right, look, we will, you know, we will compromise on some things that you want if you will compromise on some things that I want and, you know, basically build your majorities uh, that way. And lo and behold, what you might find is that you achieve bipartisanship through the art of horse trading, through the art of making these deals and, you know, uh, accomplish what you need. And at the end of the day, uh, the American people would probably be very, very rewarding for both Democrats and Republicans that uh, take this approach. So, you know, something to think about, something to communicate to your elected officials saying, look, we need to get, you know, these things done, whether it's highways built or bridges fixed or, you know, Internet spread out into rural areas, whatever the the big ticket items are that are important to your district, you need to communicate to your elected officials that that is what you want to see them accomplish. And, you know, if they work with the system that's in place right now and get that accomplished, they will be rewarded by giving, you know, another term or, you know, not voted out of office or not primaried, etc., so, you know, I, I think the Democrats are missing an opportunity here by hanging their hats so firmly on this this rack of bipartisanship when what they really should be doing is, you know, getting together with the Republicans and saying, all right, what do we need to do to do a deal? What do we need to do to to make what is good for the country happen? This is the way that, you know, it has been done through, you know, through American history, you know, up until the last, you know, 40 years or so when this this idea of these fences going up and these parties sank, these party sections being built uh, and, and so forth seemed to take over our elected officials. So, you know, it's just something to think about there, something to communicate that you want to see you know, the results of this legislation and you don't care uh, about how it gets done or who uh, ends up being signed on to do it, the at the end of the day, you want that highway built. You want those schools upgraded. You want that infrastructure, you know, put in place. You want those benefits to happen in your district. And in order to make that happen, you know, there again, there's got to be some good old-fashioned horse trading done. And, you know, if it means you know, doing that behind closed doors, away from all the media criticisms and away from all of the, the pressure and so forth to where you come out into the open and announce we have a deal, you know, so be it. Bully for you. Let's make it happen. And, you know, and that that's the kind of message that we need to be getting to our elected officials. This idea of never working with a Democrat or never working with a Republican because they're a Democrat or because they're a Republican is putting party above country, and that's not what it, it's about. That's not why we send them to Washington, D.C. It's not why we send them, quite frankly, to the state capitals, uh, to the legislatures in the states, to the city halls in the cities, and so forth. You know, it, this is about 
electing people to get into their position and do the will of the people, not the will of the party, not the will of the lobbyists, not the will of, you know, the big money, but to do the will of the people. And if they're not going to do that, then, you know, the people are going to exercise the franchise to move them out of office and put people in place who will do what we want them to do. So, you know, some, some food to think about there, some calls to action to make. Uh, let's, let's see how, you know, we can get that communication happening. You know, again, you can go to the websites for the Senate, uh, senate.gov for the House at house.gov. Find your senators, find your congressional representatives. Same thing at the state level. There are lists of who represents you at the state websites uh, all the way down to the local level so that you know who it is you need to talk to, who it is you need to meet with, who it is you need to communicate with to make sure they hear that we are out there, we are watching, we are listening, and most importantly, that the electorate is engaged. All right? So let's, let's take that. We'll, we'll take our break here. We'll come back with the second half and fire it up right after this break. Stay tuned. Hi, folks. It's Steve from Fired Up. As you know, on this show, we spend a lot of time talking about COVID-19 and the effects it's having on our country, on our community, and on our families. I wanted to give you a couple of public service announcements that came from the University of California at San Francisco. The first is from Dr. Star Knight, uh, who is a, an MD at uh, the University of California at San Francisco. And the second is from Jonathan Butler, PhD, also from the University of California at San Francisco. Please take a moment and listen to these two important messages. And again, consider carefully uh, about getting the COVID-19 vaccine. Uh, this is a public service announcement from us here at Fire It Up and from your friends at WJMSRadio.com. I first got the vaccine, number one, as obviously to protect myself, but, but honestly to protect my family. I've had direct discussions after getting the vaccine with members of my own family. And I, I think in general, there was just kind of overall skepticism, especially in the black community, but in black and brown communities alike. Uh, there's, uh, his, there are historic health inequities, and so there are reasonable concerns from members of those communities. And that's a community that I belong to as well, and that's why I had to inform myself and look at the data myself. The data was very reassuring, and one thing for me as a Black American was seeing how diverse the patient population was in each trial and, and feeling comfortable with that as well. There is lots of misinformation in the media, and it's hard to combat that. And so I would go with trusted sources, medical professionals, people in your community, people in your family, ask about their experiences and get familiar. I first heard about the COVID vaccine. I was a little bit uneasy. Um, I didn't know much about it. Didn't know whether or not it was safe or effective. So I did a little bit of my research. Uh, I realized that it was safe, it was effective, and then the side effects were very minimum. Everyone has a choice to take the vaccine. And if you don't feel comfortable now, it's okay. One thing that is important about the vaccine is the vaccine is for us. African-Americans who have higher rates of dying from COVID-19, the vaccine can actually save our lives. Not only save your life, but save the life of your family members. And so when people have a hesitation around taking the vaccine, again, you should consider what are the benefits of me taking the vaccine versus the risk 
of me getting or having long-term effects of actually getting COVID. And once you consider that, once you've talked with your doctor, then make a decision of whether or not it's okay to do it now. And welcome back, everybody, to the second half of Fired Up right here on WJMSRadio.com. This is Steve, and we're going to jump right back into uh, the political machine here in the U.S. I want to bring you a couple of updates on stories we've covered over the past few weeks, starting with the Republican-funded and uh, Republican-pushed-for audit of the election of 2020 results in Arizona. And the physical audit itself, according to reports, is all but complete. And reports starting to come out from Arizona are indicating that there, as, as should be expected, were no evidence of any uh, significant or substantial voter fraud or election improprieties in that election in the state, uh, contrary to what uh, the Republicans, uh, particularly the Republicans uh, supportive of uh, the former President Donald Trump, have been claiming. Uh, there was a, a letter that was uh, released, an open letter to Republicans from um, Stephen Richer, who is the Maricopa County recorder, uh, basically involved in the process, sent out to uh, Arizona Republicans and the GOP. Uh, and uh, the article uh, goes into to give points on the letter and discusses the fact that he detailed in this letter, which totaled 38 pages, uh, and described the controversial Cyber Ninjas audit in the state's most populous county as, quote, an abomination. So, you know, uh, again, uh, Mr. Richer issued a, this scathing letter outlining the reasons why the Republican-backed audit is flawed and driven by misinformation promoted by Trump and his allies. The Cyber Ninja audit, which was commissioned by Arizona's GOP-controlled state Senate, is winding down, but GOP officials in Maricopa have regularly criticized the inaccurate information being reported by the Florida-based company and Republican state senators. And a quote from Mr. Richer that he has in his letter goes, in quote, at this point, I hope my principal motivation for speaking out is abundantly clear. The ninja audit is an abomination that has so far eroded election confidence and defamed good people. Uh, he goes on to explain in length how he had campaigned for Trump, as had his family. He also pointed out that he initially held back, choosing not to speak out as election challenge lawsuits went through the courts. But, uh, according to Mr. Richard, there was a point where he could not keep silent any further. And he said again, quoting him here, uh, more than my moral code, philosophical agenda, interest group, or even Team Red versus Team Blue, many politicians will simply do whatever it takes to stay in office, close quote. Uh, he goes on to say, quote, right now, a lot of Republican politicians have their fingers in the wind and think that conforming to stop and to stop the steal or at least staying quiet about it is necessary for reelection in their ruby red districts or a statewide Republican primary. So that's so that's what they'll do. Multiple elected or hoping to be elected Republicans have told me this explicitly, he said, close quote. Uh, concluding it with it's disgusting. So 
you know, the the letter from this, um, you know, this politician, this uh, he is the county recorder in Maricopa County, uh, runs in parallel to other uh, letters and, and reports that have come out from Arizona, including one from Arizona State Senate President Karen Fan, uh, who also is a Republican, has repeatedly defended the audit, saying it's necessary to ensure confidence in the state's elections. But GOP officials from Maricopa County have said the audit has done precisely the opposite. They have said that the results were already formally audited, revealing no signs of fraud or significant discrepancies. Uh, and Mr. Richard goes on in his letter stating, after the November 2020 election, appointees from the Republican, Democrat, and Libertarian parties worked in bipartisan groups of three to hand count more than 47,000 votes. Through, uh, though the county facilitated the hand count, the political party appointees perform the actual counting, not staff of Maricopa County. These hand-counted votes matched the machine count 100%, he wrote. The county then ran another post-election logic and accuracy test to make sure the machines had not been disrupted in any manner during the election. The results again matched 100%, he added. On Thursday, and uh, this was the past Thursday, Arizona State, I'm sorry, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs released a lengthy document who outlining the flaws of the Cyber Ninjas audit. And her characterization includes, quote, all credi credible auditors are characterized by controls, access, and transparency that allow for the processes and procedures to be replicated if necessary, close quote. Uh, at this report, as this report has described, excuse me, the review conducted by the Senate's contractors has consistently lacked all three of these factors. So, you know, there, there are others who are uh, critical of the audit, of the audit company and the audit process. And, you know, it's, it's clear that, you know, information that comes out of the audit, uh, at least preliminarily, is showing no discrepancies, no problems, no uh, issues of machine tampering, and no credibility to such bizarre uh, accusations as ballots being shipped in from China and you know the audit company micro-examining the ballots looking for bamboo fibers and so forth. Uh, you know these these tactics really did nothing in terms of any way overturning the election. So it looks like, and, and again, while the final report has still not been issued and is being anxiously awaited to see what the auditors conclude, uh, it is looking like that there's going to be no there there found in Arizona. However, that is not stopping the uh, you know, Republican Party or at least factions of the Republican Party going forward with similar audits to be held in other uh, battleground states, including Pennsylvania, including Michigan, and others uh, following similar processes, looking for what they uh, presume to be similar deficiencies or, or defective elements in the voting process. 
So we will stay tuned on that front and keep you posted as to what happens. But it looks like the Arizona audit is pretty much a done thing and that uh, nothing would be found uh, coming out of the state of Arizona. And another uh, story that made you know huge news around the world and particularly here in the U.S., which was the U.S. pullout of Afghanistan, and you know the problems that have been created uh, in that country as you know thousands and thousands of Americans and uh, Afghan natives who worked with us during you know the the. 20-year Afghan war are trying desperately to get out of that country. Well, it appears that the Republican Party is trying to uh, perform a little bit of revisionist history in laying the blame for the uh, Afghan war in at least the the last few years of it and so forth um, and for the the problems that have occurred in the pullout uh, with the Biden administration and have gone back so far as to uh, scrub web pages that showed that at, at one point former President Donald Trump actually was calling for an early withdrawal of American troops from Afghanistan and that you know the, the war was inaccurately being blamed on democratic leadership. Uh, so, you know, that's that's the the gist of uh, what's going on. And, you know, there was an an article uh, that was posted. Uh, and, and again, this was you know, attempted to be scrubbed from the Internet, but it was found anyway. And it was dated February 29th of 2020. And, you know, it says uh, the headline says Afghan conflict. Trump hails a deal with Taliban to end 18-year war. Uh, and, you know, in it, Mr. Trump said 5,000 U.S. troops would leave Afghanistan by May and he would meet Taliban leaders in the near future without specifying where. Jumping out of the article, that meeting actually did happen in Doha, Qatar, and an agreement was signed between then-President Trump and the leaders of the Taliban on the terms under which uh, the U.S. would uh, agree to withdraw all troops within 14 months if the militants uphold the historic deal. Other elements of you know, the revisionist uh, storyline of the Afghan war is, you know, as I said, that you know, this was a, a democratic war when, in fact, uh, the invasion of Afghanistan was, was uh, suggested and approved uh, under President Bush shortly after the uh, attacks of 9-11 with the goal of uh, you know, eliminating uh, al-Qaeda, which was responsible. Uh, and as, as the, the article says, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan weeks after the September 2001 attacks in New York by al-Qaeda, which was then based in Afghanistan. Uh, the Taliban were ousted from power but became an insurgent force that by 2018 was active in more than two-thirds of the country. You know, and you know, this, this war did have consequences. 2,400 U.S. troops uh, have been killed during the conflict, 
And you know, as of the, the issuing of this article in 2020, about 12,000 are still stationed in the country. And I believe that number uh, increased over uh, the course of, of 2020 into early 2021 to about 15,000 U.S. troops. Um, you know, at, at the time, you know, President Trump congratulated Mike Pompeo on, you know, on his and handling of it along with Defense Secretary Mark Esper uh, and the people of the United States, quote, for having spent so much in terms of blood and in terms of treasure and treasury. He said the Taliban had been trying to reach an agreement with the U.S. for a long time and that he had faith in the deal because, quote, everyone is tired of war. So, you know, and it was it was clear that, you know, former President Trump was not only in support of the the pullback and, and exit from Afghanistan, but was actively pursuing that process. Now, the 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 talk coming out of the Republican Party is that this was being driven by, you know, Democratic efforts. Um, and, you know, if if there is any blame to be had, that it it should be laid at the feet of the current administration of President Biden. And that simply is not accurate. Uh, this war has spanned. Uh, Republican and Democratic administrations of President Bush uh, and and the president since, um, you know, President Obama, President Trump, and now President Biden. This has been a 20-year endeavor that, you know, at the end uh, really has not seemed to accomplish more than the goal of, you know, reducing al-Qaeda in terms of its influence and and effect in the country. So, you know, we'll keep track on how the withdrawal goes. Uh, there's already a deadline to have, you know, all American and, you know, Afghan supporters of the American and, and allied effort in Afghanistan out of the country by the end of this month. Uh, right now, it is a race to the finish line to see if that can be accomplished. But if not, President Biden has agreed that he would extend, you know, our, our presence and our efforts at removing uh, or relocating individuals out of the country uh, for as long as is needed. So, you know, a as we say on the show, you know, we have to watch the games that are being played. Uh, and right now with the Afghan war, the Republicans seem to be playing a game of revisionist history. Uh, and it's not the only thing uh, on which they are trying to uh, revise the, uh, the, the perceptions of what's going on. In another uh, one, and this is actually a, a new element that came across my news feeds, uh, and this one came from Fox Business. And it's a, it's a report that talks about how uh, House Representative Rashida Taib and Ayanna Presley uh, have earned income, rental income uh, during the time frame where the, the U.S. is trying to achieve or the Congress is trying to achieve a uh, rent moratorium. And as I said, the article's from Fox Business and it reads in part, um, Rashida Tlaib, Democrat of Michigan, 
and Ayanna Presley, Democrat of Massachusetts, both of the House of Representatives, both made thousands of dollars from rental properties last year, despite repeated calls to cancel rent during the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, annual financial disclosures show. And the article goes on to talk about how uh, Representative Taib uh, earned between $15,000 and $50,000 in rental income from a de Detroit property, which matches the income range of the rental property that she received in 2019, according to required disclosure forms that are, are filed uh, as, as needed by uh, elected officials. Um, Ayanna Presley's financial disclosure uh, showed between five dollars and $15,000 in rental income from a Boston property held in her husband's name. The pre-pandemic disclosure in 2019 also shows the same income range as the 2020. Now, this is during a time when both representatives were part of the effort to get rents canceled, extend eviction and foreclosure moratoriums, provide rental assistance, and offer legal representation for those at risk of eviction. And that was from a tweet from uh, Representative Presley uh, released in December of 2020. Now, it should be noted here, and there's something, an important factor that does not show up in this article. And that's the fact that the, uh, the cancellation of rent uh, and foreclosure moratoriums and eviction moratoriums, um, one, were all the rent cancel had not happened, but the eviction and foreclosure moratoriums were in fact enacted under guidelines from the CDC uh, using its authority uh, dealing with a public health crisis. Uh, and those were in place until the end of July of this year. And, you know, but nowhere does it state that, you know, the representatives were receiving income that in fact uh, they were entitled to receive simply because the law that would have, you know, have canceled rent uh, was not passed and had not yet been passed. So it was actually legal for them to still collect what rents they could collect. And, you know, it, it is, it's clear that, you know, in, in this case, and, and again, this is from a source at Fox Business, uh, Cameron Cawthorn authored this article, um, while they state the, the claim that, yes, they did make rental income, uh, it does not state, in terms of full disclosure, that they were legally entitled to receive that rental income because that aspect of the law uh, had not been passed and was not in effect. So, you know, it, it goes to point out something I say often. When you see articles from one source on one side, you need to go look around and see what other sources are saying about the same thing so that you get a full picture. Because as I always say, the truth is generally somewhere in the middle between side A and side B. And finally, in a related story, um, we've talked several times on this, on this program over the months about uh, this idea of critical race theory which if you want to hear 
know, my discussion and my take on critical race theory, uh, you can go to the WJMSradio.com archive site or go to the WJMSradio.com webpage and click on show content and you can get access to the full range of uh, shows that we have broadcast here on Fired Up, including one from, I believe it is two weeks ago, where we talked about critical race theory in, in some detail. So I won't re relitigate that discussion. But uh, what, what I found is that a um, black conservative group uh, has written an open letter urging schools to drop critical race theory and adopt something called 1776 Unites. And uh, this was uh, posted uh, by the Kelly News Service. And uh, the article goes on to talk about how a group of black conservatives is urging school boards around the U.S. to adopt civic-minded courses that focus on the founding fathers' ideas instead of critical race theory. Uh, in an open letter published uh, last Monday, members of the nonprofit Woodman, Woodson Center's 1776 Uni Unites Initiative argued that critical race theory and similar ideas teach young children of color that they are born into a racist system with no hope to control their own lives. And like I said, we've talked about this in some detail in prior shows. Uh, it goes on to say, quote, the prevailing narrative of racial grievance has been corrupting the instruction of American history and the humanities for many decades, but has accelerated dangerously over the past year, the letter reads. Uh, continuing the quote, the most damaging effects of such instruction fall on lower income minority children who are implicitly told that they are helpless victims with no power or agency to shape their own futures. So the, the idea here from the Woodson Center is that their 1776 Unites theory uh, talks about uh, the history of this country from the perspective of looking at uh, what has transpired in, in, in response to these elements such as uh, slavery, Jim Crow, you know, and, and all of the other related uh, impacts that critical race theory brings to the fore. And it, it goes on and says, embedded within the achievements of American history are the tools of self-betterment and self-renewal that our country has always deployed on the journey to become a more perfect union, close quote. The letter continues, quote, our children deserve an authentic vision of that story, one that will help them to achieve their own human flourishing. Uh, it talks about instead of adopting CRT or bits and pieces of it, the group uh, con uh, continues, it's urging school boards to use their 1776 Unites curriculum, which aims to uphold continuity, not rupture, uh, dignity, not grievance, and resilience, not fragility. Uh, essentially, what this is talking about is this 1776 Unites uh, theory, and I downloaded and, and read um, the, the executive summary of their curriculum, which runs some 2,500 pages, uh, and it's written for, it's written in three tracks for elementary, for middle school, and for uh, college level uh, teachers, and 
it it basically um, takes the approach that as a result of slavery, the the country, the leaders, the then leaders of the country, who were you know obviously uh, white. Um, brought about significant and substantial change in this country, uh, including, you know, taking the country to war in order to eliminate, you know, slavery in the United States. Uh, it talks about how legislation was passed in the 1800s, uh, giving, you know, more elements of the disenfranchised population at the time the right to vote. It talks about the Civil Rights Act of 1965 as a remedy to Jim Crow. However, you know, in, in, and again, in reading the executive summary and scanning through some of the pages, uh, there was no mention, and I searched specifically for, you know, things like the, um, the March on Washington for the, the uh, Selma March uh, across the Edmund Pettus Bridge, for various elements that were turning points in you know, the, the struggle in this country to address the inequities of race that we had seen. And they are you know, missing from the description and discussion in the document as far as I could tell. Now again, caveat that with I did not read all 2,500 pages, um, but you know, it it, this seems to paint this picture that, you know, America self-healed itself of these problems over the course of time. Now, compare and contrast that with critical race theory, which is saying that America has not healed itself uh, of these, these disparities over the course of time. And, and a lot of that can be seen and evidenced by what we have seen over the past, you know, 10 or 15 years in terms of, of racial and economic violence in this country and divisions across race and economic lines that we have seen. So I offer out there and I encourage you to go search up the 1776 Unites um, manifesto from, from the Woodson Center's 1776 Unites initiative and search and, and look at uh, the descriptions of critical race theory. Compare and contrast the two, and what I think you'll find is that you know the, the reality of what we should be doing and what we should be striving for is somewhere in between the middle of these two extremes. You know, I don't agree with every element of critical race theory. I think in some terms, it does in fact paint an overly bleak picture of the the potential that is existent in our country for all people to advance and improve themselves and likewise i disagree with you know elements of this 1776 unites uh structure that talks about the fact that america has miraculously self-healed itself over this when clearly the the history of our country over the last 100 years has shown that uh, that is not entirely accurate. Um, yes, we have effected changes that have impacted uh, many of the inequities. And I, I will point to the Voting Rights Act of 1965 as one of those changes. However, we have also seen this country turn around and in, in 2013 strip out the most effective part of that act 
that actually made a difference in terms of elections and, and voter disenfranchisement and made improvements in the system, which was struck down, you know, by the Supreme Court in 2013. So, you know, a, a, again, as always, the truth is in the middle. You know, you, you need to do your research. Don't accept one side or the other side on face value without going back and vetting and verifying what it is they're telling you. So, you know, that's just part, you know, and parcel of the calls to action we issue each week here on Fired Up and something that, you know, we need to make sure that we continue to do so that we are, you know, informed, educated and enlightened about what is going on based on our own diligence, our own research, our own fact finding. All right. So we have run to the wire again on another show here on Fired Up. Thank you all for listening each week. As always, I do greatly appreciate it. If you have any thoughts or comments on anything that I've talked about today or on any show, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. Let me know what you're thinking. Let me know your thoughts. Let me know if you disagree or if you agree. Let's have a discussion about it. Everybody, please stay safe. Uh, If you have the opportunity, please go out and get yourself vaccinated. Please follow medical and scientific guidelines. Have a great week, and I look forward to talking to all of you again in seven days. message wherever you stand I'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait the future started yesterday and we're already late